podcast one production. Osaka, Japan's second city. It's all about business here, but not today. Today, the city's at a standstill. The roads are all blocked. There are more police than I've ever seen anywhere in Japan. And there's a metal detector at the hotel where I'm headed. Because staying in this hotel are the Prime Minister of Australia and the President of Turkey. And they're both in town for the same thing. It's the G20 Leaders Summit. The 2019 G20, it marked a turning point. Not for the leaders, yeah, they continue to squabble about trade and all of the other issues that divide them. It marked a turning point for money. For what money has been issued by central banks and carefully managed by them, and for what money is becoming. Just 10 days before that G20 meeting, Facebook dropped its Libra white paper. And that changed everything about money forever. Not because Libra will ever be a real thing. That remains to be seen. But because it shows us that a big enough company can enter the tidy, safe, stable world of central banking and rip it apart at the seams. And once that's happened, even just once, everything has to change. When I was in Japan this year, Series 2 of Cryptonomics, it it sort of wrote itself because a new story is unfolding. It's a different story from last year. The technology remains mostly the same, but the world has moved along. Hello, I'm Mark Pesci, and welcome to Episode 3 of Series 2 of Cryptonomics, a show dedicated to exploring and explaining the way cryptocurrencies and the technology underneath them, the blockchain, are transforming our entire world. Along the way, we've learned what makes it all tick, how people are using this technology to do amazing things, and what it all means for the future of money, finance, investing, and the economy. We've spoken to folks who have built successful businesses using the blockchain, some of whom have even created their own successful cryptocurrencies. We've learned how things work, why they work, and when they don't. Now, in Series 1, we covered enough of the basics to help you make your own investment decisions. You have the tools you need to investigate any cryptocurrency and ask, is it real? Is it wise? Is it a good investment? You learn to the questions you'd need to ask and the sorts of answers you'd want to receive. But cryptocurrencies are only the tip of the iceberg. The whole field of blockchain is just over a decade old. But it's already working its way into the core of some very established businesses, including banking, and it's being used as the foundation for some entirely new ones. Over the next billion seconds, the entire world of economics... Everything that's touched by money will be changed by this new technology, and that's why we've called this series Cryptonomics. And when you look beyond the ripples produced by the rise and fall, and now the rise again in the price of Bitcoin, you can see another wave, a tsunami of change that's rolling over banks, retailers, even nations. And there's a lot of hype surrounding cryptocurrency. Some of that hype is justified. It's a new way of doing business. It's already forcing businesses as old and established as banking to make way for it. Now, in a moment, we'll trace out the story of the G20, cryptocurrencies, and regulation, and how they all came together in Osaka. (music) 
this point, I've been to three G20 summits. Now, it's probably not what you're thinking. You're thinking the leaders' summit where all the presidents and the prime ministers get together for two days of photo ops. And that's the most visible face of the G20. So, of course, that's what comes to mind. But that's not really what the G20 is, not at its core. The G20 is a time and a place for a whole bunch of officials and bureaucrats and regulators and all their hangers-on to get together in one place at one time and get some work done. It's the event that's on everyone's calendar year after year. So the G20 has become a scheduling point for a whole series of meetings, hundreds of them, that happen in concert with the Leaders' Summit. And you probably never really hear about any of these other meetings, but I've been to a few of them. My first G20 was in 2014 when it was held in Brisbane. I was up there to keynote and chair the first global blockchain forum. It was billed as the first time global regulators and finance ministers could learn something substantial about the new cryptocurrencies and the technologies that they employed. Now, my opening talk is up on YouTube, and we'll link to that on the website. After I gave that talk, I kept the program moving through a day of speakers from all around the world who spoke to their own knowledge of this very new front line in payments, economics, and trade. I've mentioned this before. Back in episode two of series one, we talked to Ron Tucker, who offered to pay me for my work in Bitcoin. And that's an offer I should have accepted because it would have come to about a quarter million dollars for that day's work at the peak of Bitcoin. And even today, around $150,000. Not bad rates. Now, the following year, the G20 was in Antalya. That's on the south Mediterranean coast of Turkey. And I was there for that as well. And this time, I wasn't at a global blockchain forum. Instead, I was speaking at something called the SME Finance Forum. That's an effort by the World Bank and the Global Project for Financial Inclusion, or GPFI, to bring banking services to businesses in the developing world. And businesses in the developing world don't generally have banking services because the banks are too big, the businesses are too small, and the profits just aren't there. I gave the closing keynote at that event. That one's not on YouTube. But Antalya was a great place to give that talk because it's in what was 2,500 years ago called Lydia. Now, back in episode two of series one, here's what I had to say. 3,000 years ago, people didn't have cash. They traded in kind. They exchanged one good for another good. It's not really clear exactly when people began to trade in gold. That goes back a very long time. Gold is durable. It's malleable. It's very dense. A little bit of gold weighs a whole lot. It's also rare, which means that a little bit of gold not only weighs a lot, it's worth a lot. And people have been trading small bits of gold jewelry for a very long time. Certainly for as long as we've had writing and ledgers that could be baked into the sun to become permanent records. But there wasn't really any need to form the gold into jewelry because gold has value in itself. You could just trade in gold. And around 2,600 years ago, a civilization, the Lydians, they were in what is today southwestern Turkey, they invented the first coin. I've seen these coins. They're tiny. They're not much bigger than a lentil. These Lydian coins were made out of a substance known as electrum. 
That's a naturally occurring alloy of silver and gold. Something similar to the white gold that we use today in jewelry. That's also gold that's been alloyed with silver. And they were stamped with the image of a lion because that stamp told you it was a real Lydian coin. Now, the Lydians, they lived at the crossroads of the ancient world. There were traders from Persia and Mesopotamia and Phoenicia and Egypt, mixing with traders from the Greek colonies that were scattered through the Aegean Sea and far-flung networks of trade stretching all the way to Sicily and Carthage and southern Spain. Traders needed a portable durable and valuable medium of exchange, something that was small, something that could be counted easily, something that would be instantly recognized by another trader as valuable. So coins were an immediate hit. 600 years later, around the time Augustus Caesar became the first emperor of Rome, coins were in use across almost all of Eurasia, from Britain all the way to China, carried with traders wherever they went. Cash had become indispensable to commerce. So here I am in the birthplace of money, talking to a room of central bankers, because when the World Bank hosts an event at the G20, central bankers show up. So I'm talking to these central bankers and I'm telling them that a new form of money has been born and it's going to change everything about how people use money. Now, I can't say it was the best talk I've ever given. I hadn't really connected the dots for the audience as well as I like to. I knew what I was trying to say, but I'm not sure that anyone else there was clear on what I meant. Four years later, well, I can see things a lot more clearly. And I was back at the G20 in Osaka, ready to lay it all out. Here's how it went. To set the scene this morning, I want to take you back 25 years. Last month, it was the end of May, I was in Geneva. And it was another smallish gathering of experts, a little bigger than this one. And they were working to solve another problem. There had already been a quarter century of work on computer hypertext systems. And they'd created a fragmented landscape of commercial products all of which had failed to gain any traction. But a new technology had come along, one that could fix all of that. It was known as the World Wide Web. The web was open to all, the web was free to all, but it still needed a few basic agreements in place on how page layout should work, how to display images, and there were a hundred other points that we don't even bother to consider today because they were all sorted out at that gathering. And I know this because I was one of the experts at that meeting invited by Sir Tim Berners-Lee to drive standardization of the display of three-dimensional images inside of web browsers. And I did that work, it's known as VRML, together with two collaborators, Tony Parisi and Gavin Bell. Now you won't have heard of those two names. Okay, that's not exactly true. Gavin Bell changed his last name a few years ago, which is rare for men, but does happen occasionally. He's known today as Gavin Anderson. Gavin was the chief scientist of the Bitcoin Foundation. It's a good role for him because he always understood the need for standards, for solutions, and consensus. He always understood the need to design for the future. And when I reconnected with him after a few years and I found out he was doing this, I was like, what are you doing at the Bitcoin Foundation? He said, well... I'm working 
on what happens when we get quantum cryptography and all of the key solutions we have suddenly no longer work because you can factor large numbers quickly. And that sounds very esoteric to a layperson, but to someone who understands how cryptocurrencies work, that's absolutely vital. It was a problem worth solving. Gavin had his eyes on the future. And the future is our focus today. Now, here's the truth. Whenever you discover a new land, the first thing you do is you send out the explorers. And they don't know what they don't know. They learn a few things, and then they send out the scouts. And the scouts go and map out the terrain. But the scouts don't linger. But then come the pioneers. And it is often said that the pioneers can be identified by the arrows in their backs. Pioneers live by their own lights and by their own wits. There are no rules for pioneers other than the rules they make for themselves. And that gives every pioneering frontier an anarchic feel, a wild west. But those halcyon days, they never last. Because the pioneers are inevitably overrun by the settlers. And settlers need infrastructure, they need security, they need stability, they need safety, they need rules, they need laws, they need all of the perks of civilization. And that pretty much sums up why we're here today. Almost every single person in this room is a pioneer. And you have the arrows to show for it. But the settlers are all queued up. They are ready to stake their claims. They're going to change the landscape forever. Cryptocurrencies have changed the world. They are the most important and significant financial innovation of the 21st century. And we're finding a growing number of uses for them. And as they become more useful, they become more attractive to the highly regulated formal financial system. And so we're here in this room today to bring a little order to the chaos. To lay down a welcome mat for the settlers. But first, we have to come to agreement about what that means. And that's why we're here. And if we do it right... What happens here will have a lasting impact, not just on the world of cryptocurrencies, but on the entire world of finance. Between the announcement of the V20 summit and this morning's commencement, the entire cryptocurrency landscape has undergone a fundamental shift because of Facebook's project Libra. Nearly every central banker of consequence has an opinion on Libra. But whether they like it or not, all of them have stressed that Libra must comply with all relevant KYC and AML regulations. And that just happens to be our job here. So what we're doing, like it or not, is too important to fail.
So the V20 was the crossing point. It was the crossing point between the exchanges, the cryptocurrencies or the virtual asset service providers, the VASPs as they're calling themselves now, the regulators, so that's the FATF and the G20, and the central bankers. Because the central bankers are now seeing what they need to do to adjust to a world that has cryptocurrencies like Libra in it. And all of that was in that room that day. This is the moment when the dance begins that defines what money is in the 21st century. And the person who orchestrated that dance is here with us in the studio today. I am happy to welcome back Ron Tucker to Cryptonomics. So Ron is more than a Bitcoin pioneer. He's co-founder of the longest-running exchange in Australia, BitTrade. But he's also chair of the Australian Digital Commerce Association. And in that role, well, well, let's get into the story. Welcome, Ron. Thank you, Mark. It's good to be here. Good to be back with us. So in our last episode, we learned all about the Financial Action Task Force, the FATF. Mm. Now, when did you learn about them and when did you learn that they wanted to regulate the VASP, the cryptocurrency exchanges? I think it was June last year at the G20 finance ministers meeting in Argentina, uh, where we first got word that there was to be a new set of uh, guidelines uh, created by the Financial Action Task Force. All right, so so you heard that there were going to be guidelines. What did that mean when you heard it? Well, there actually wasn't a lot of noise about it, and it really wasn't picked up by industry. So uh, it went a little quiet. It was subtle. Uh, It really, we became aware as an industry February 22nd of this year when the guidelines, the proposed standards, were actually uh, dropped and put forward to industry. It was more that this was coming out of left field. The, the industry felt there really hadn't been enough consultation with FATF throughout the process. Uh, so when the standards dropped and we became aware, uh, we activated the Global Blockchain Forum Network, which has grown from those four countries now to 15 trade associations as of last year. We meet annually at Consensus in New York. Uh, it's acted as a bit more of a loose collaboration, but this was the vehicle by which we, we really... Uh, decided to step in and and, uh, start working with the Financial Action Task Force. Uh, We worked with them uh, to to draft the submission and say, look, uh, there's policy implications here that are going to have a bit of an adverse effect on us if we don't have the time that's required to actually build out uh, the technical solution uh, that would be required from those policy implications. We uh, engaged in a private consultation forum for two days, uh, early April. There were about 200 people in the room a quarter of which were the world's financial crimes regulators, so think FinCEN, Austrac, MAS, uh, Japan's FSA, for example, a quarter of which were then uh, the central banks of the world. Uh, the next group were the banking sector, the incumbents. And finally, the, the, the remaining 45 of us were the crypto exchanges and representatives of the trade associations. So some of the biggest crypto exchanges in the world were all represented at that time. It's interesting. Uh, what came out of it is we realized it was a bit of a double-edged sword, on the one hand, by being regulated, and that is certainly something that we're not opposed to. Nobody wants to see uh, everybody. The crypto exchanges, crypto exchanges, bottom lines tend to be affected if they're not mitigating financial crime. So it's it's something that that uh, uh, you know we embrace with with uh, strong anti money laundering programs and counterterrorism financing uh, technologies and and processes that are already operating inside of our businesses. Um, so on the upside. While it essentially 
brought Bitcoin officially into uh, the financial services system globally, the downside was just that time that we needed to actually be able to implement these new requirements and again build a technology solution. Uh, so with six to seven weeks notice and encouraged by many of the folks that were uh, there with us in Vienna on both sides of the table, uh, we called together uh, the 20 biggest crypto exchanges in the world and hosted a two-day event at the G20 uh, this year to be able to address the new policies and uh, essentially build out a roadmap with the cryptocurrency exchanges as to how we're going to fulfill those requirements through technology. I think we did extraordinarily well. Uh, one of the most important things that we were able to achieve, apart from for the first time, really, historically, bringing together uh, the biggest crypto exchanges in the world to the same table to have a conversation like this, was there was consensus and enough agreement uh, to, to be able to move forward together. Uh, day one focused on the policy implications. Now we know they're here. We're not going to be able to change that. Uh, day two was then on uh, workshop sessions to be able to actually map out that technology solution. So you got it's important to point out too, what's now required of the virtual asset service providers uh, is what's required of the banks. And they accomplish that through the SWIFT payments network. Uh, which I'm sure you're familiar with. So that's what's on the table, and we have been able to lay down a map, a uh, set of steps forward. So now that there is a true 900-pound gorilla in the room in the form of Libra and Facebook, mm -hmm. and that anything that they want to do with cryptocurrencies will clearly be covered by the same rules that the FATF is, is recommending for everything else and for right. everyone else, are we going to see a world over the next few years where not just the exchanges, but the largest social media company in the world and all of its 900-pound gorilla friends, mm -hmm. so MasterCard, Visa, all these companies, are also going to be deeply participating with this kind of institution in the future? I believe so. That's right. Uh, I think it's look poorly governed or poorly organized businesses produce poor results. Uh, I think it's only natural that you're going to see uh, an organization like this emerge uh, and have the participation of these uh, technology incumbents in the room, as well as uh, all parts of our ecosystem and community. All right, Ron, thank you very much for joining us on this episode of Cryptonomics. Thank you. Now, in that opening address to the V20, I talked about the first web conference back in May of 1994. And there's another important story from that conference. It's one that has a lot of meaning for us today as we debate the value of Libra and the need for regulations and how all of this is going to work at global scale. Tim Berners-Lee, that's the father of the web. He's been on this show. Tim opened the event and then immediately handed the podium over to someone named Dr. David Chome. Now, Dr. Chome is one of the fathers of cryptocurrency. Before Bitcoin, there was something called DigiCash, and that was created by Dr. Chome. I mean, look it up. You can find it on Google. It's money that was designed for the web when the web was still very young. And the very first public demonstration of the very first digital currency was the very first keynote at the very first conference on the web. So the connections between digital currencies and the web, they go all the way back to the beginning. 
Now, is it Libra that's going to carry it forward? If so, it's going to have to do it in a way that doesn't wreck the financial system and doesn't create an avalanche of money laundering and doesn't finance terrorism. Libra, like every other form of money, will need to play by the rules. The rules are agreed upon. And how those rules go into practice... That's going to be something that's up to every one of the 39 nations that compose the FATF. And that's the next step here. Nations will start passing laws and cryptocurrencies and their exchanges will have no choice but to conform. But when they do, they'll be accepted into the mainstream. They'll become another form of money and everyone everywhere will use them. That's something, it seemed almost impossibly far away back when we recorded Series 1 of Cryptonomics. It's only a year ago, and now it's almost here. Now that we've nailed down the basics of Libra, of the FATF, of the coming regulation of exchanges, it's time to digest what we've learned. So the next episode of Cryptonomics, I'll be joined by the show's brain trust. That's Mark Jeffrey and Rob Tursick, And we'll explore what it means to be living in a post-Libra world. That's on the next episode of Cryptonomics. If you want to learn more about the V20 or IDAXA or Ron Tucker, cruise on over to our website at cryptonomics.show. You'll find everything you need to go deeper, as deep as you need to learn as much as you want. That's cryptonomics.show. Big thanks to Ron Tucker for coming on our show. The Next Billion Seconds Cryptonomics was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production by Matt Nikolic. For more episodes, search The Next Billion Seconds, go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the new Podcast One Australia app. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening. (laughs) 